You guys can have a seat and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. So our, our message this morning is in many ways a continuation of last week's message. So you might recall from last week that Paul told us our goal in life is to help people find and follow Jesus, but the only way we can do that is if we stand out. If we're going to help people in this world find Jesus, discover his beauty and truth and wonder and follow him, then we have to stand out from the world. We have to look different than everyone else. Well, Paul continues that theme this week by telling us the way we stand out is by living in the light. If we will live in the light, then we will help people follow Jesus. Look with me. Let's jump to chapter 5, verse 8. Paul says, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul tells us we're to live in in the light in the midst of a world that is dark. We live in an incredibly dark world where people are stumbling around in the darkness. Now, These days, it's kind of hard for us to picture because we don't really ever live in the dark. Not like they used to. I mean, we always have the lights on. We have artificial light. I have a flashlight on my phone. I just push a button and boom, I have light. So let me help you imagine what Paul is trying to to explain to us when he talks about people living in the dark. Just a couple months ago, there was a freshman up at Indiana University named Lucas Caver, and he went spelunking with the student caving group, like, you know, out into a cave. And, and they went out into a cave, and he got separated from the group and left behind, and they forgot about him for two and a half days. That guy's going to have some emotional scars after this. All your friends forgot about you for two and a half days and left you lost in a cave. So he was lost alone in a cave for two and a half days until they finally realized what they had done and came and rescued him. And I want you for a moment to think about how you would feel after two and a half days alone in the dark, lost in a cave, seeing the lights of your rescuers. Can you imagine how joyful he felt in that moment? Well, God has called you to be that kind of light to the world. Rescuing people out of darkness, bringing them into the light. But that will only happen if we live as lights. And so Paul, in this passage today, he wants us to to help us to live in the light. So first question we got to answer, how do you live in the light? How do you do this as a follower of of Christ. Well, Paul's answer is actually the same that we studied last week. You live in the light by depending on the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. The almighty, sovereign, creator God now lives in you. And as you allow him to work through you, you will be light to the world. You will stand out. Look at verse 18. This is the most famous verse in the passage this morning. One of the most famous in the whole book of Ephesians. Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Uh, Filled with the Spirit. People sometimes get confused about that. Um, The Holy Spirit is not a fluid, and you are not a container. So this isn't about pouring the Holy Spirit into you. You understand what he means by thinking about what he's contrasting it with. What happens when you drink excessive alcohol and then go drive your car? You get arrested for what? 
D-U-I, driving under the influence. Alcohol influences you. It influences the decisions you make, usually for the worse. Well, Paul is saying in the same way, let the Holy Spirit influence your decisions for the better. That's what it, what it means to, to walk in the light. How do you do it? You let the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you influence you and lead you towards righteousness and truth. And, and how do you let the Holy Spirit influence you? Well, back to that image I gave you last week. Remember, think about a little child trying to cross a busy street in New York City. Only way that little child is going to get across the street safely is to do what? Hold up a hand. To a parent, to to lead that child across the street. The child has to rely on the parent's wisdom and strength to get across the street safely. Well, that's the Christian life. We're the little child trying to cross the street in New York City. We got to hold up a hand to our Heavenly Father. We got to say, Lord, let your spirit lead me forward. I depend upon your spirit to give me strength, to guide me. And and if you'll do that, if you will hold your hand up to the Holy Spirit, allowing him to lead you and empower you, then the result, Paul tells us, is Galatians 5. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Another very famous passage. You've probably heard that before. Fruit of the spirit. What that mean? Well, that, that means the... The produce that the Spirit creates in your life as you allow Him to lead you. If you submit to the Spirit and follow Him, He will make all of these things true in your life. You will become loving. You will become joyous. You will become peaceful and patient and kind as you allow Him to do His work in you. Okay, so that's the theology in our passage today. But Paul doesn't want to leave all of this at just the theological level, thinking about being filled with the Spirit. He wants to get very practical and very concrete. What exactly does it look like when you are being filled or led by the Holy Spirit? What will be the results in your life? That's actually the bulk of the passage. primary thing Paul focuses on today is what exactly does it look like when you are living in the light? Do you want to be a light to the world? What will your life Look like he tells you four things, four characteristics of living in the light. The first is you will imitate Jesus's sacrificial love. Look at the first couple verses in chapter five. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You, you are light to the world when you imitate Jesus' sacrificial love. Now, that is actually exactly what we talked about last week. That's because verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 are actually a summary of chapter 4. If you want to stand out in this world, what do you need to do? You need to love like Jesus loved. Remember, we talked about that last week. It means that you resolve your anger and you speak grace and truth and you forgive and you share with one another. Okay, so you stand out from the world when you love one another sacrificially, but the problem is that kind of love is hard. If you think about it, sharing your stuff and speaking grace and truth and forgiving, and all, man, that is difficult to do. So why should you do it? Why should you love sacrificially like Jesus did? Well, Paul gives you the motivation in, in verse 1 by calling you something. And it's easy to miss in English. It's a little clearer in Greek. He says, as beloved children... Beloved children was a phrase used in classic Greek literature of only children. Like when a a family had just one kid 
who got all the love, all the devotion, all the inheritance. That's what it means to be a beloved child. And Paul says, that is you. His point is God the Father in heaven loves you so much that it's as if you alone exist. He doesn't love you as as one small piece out of all of humanity. He doesn't love you in the aggregate. He loves you individually by name as if you were the only human ever created. For my wife, Julie, that is actually the truth that led her to salvation. When she was a teenager, she heard that incredible truth that God loved her, Julie Ann Nyman, so incredibly much that Jesus would have died for her if she was the only human who had ever lived. And she said yes to that kind of God. That's what Paul wants you to see. Why should you love the person next to you sacrificially? Because you have already first been loved so much by the creator of the universe that he would have died for you even if you were the only human who ever existed. You don't get one billionth piece of God's love. You get all of it. Full measure of love and devotion to you personally by name. Because you are God's only child. In his eyes, you are loved that much. That reality motivates us. It compels us to love one another sacrificially. And that's the first step Paul has for us. Again, it takes us back to, to last week. We are light in this world as we love one another sacrificially. But now Paul moves forward. And he gives us three new ideas to, to help us to live in the light. And so step number two of living in the light, you've got to run from the darkness. Look with me at verses three and four. He says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So Paul names six sins here. Three are behaviors. Three are sins of speech. Let's talk about each of these. Immorality, that's a word that means any kind of sexual expression outside the boundaries of heterosexual marriage. And so it would include lust and and pornography and homosexual behavior. It would include adultery, prostitution, premarital sex, all of those things. It's a very broad word. So so any sexual expression outside heterosexual marriage. Uh, The second word, impurity, is actually broader. It includes any form of sexual sin. It also includes anything that's against God's law. So any behavior that breaks God's law is impurity. Third word, greed, that means covetousness. So you really want what other people have. You are not content with what God has given you in life. You crave to have what someone else has. That's greed. Uh, Fourth, filthiness. That's a type of of speech. Filthiness is obscenities. It's saying things that are, are shameful in your social setting. Uh, Fifth word is silly talk. That sounds ridiculous. Silly talk. What does Paul mean by that? Silly talk is foolish talk that hurts other people. So what he means by that is particularly things like slander and gossip. Okay, that's what it means to commit this silly talk. Words that hurt. Uh, Sixth, coarse jesting. This is any form of humor that is at the expense of other people. So just so we're clear, humor is not ungodly. There, there is very godly humor out there, but there is also ungodly forms of humor like sarcasm that tear down other people. And that's what coarse jesting is. You are tearing down it's humor at the expense of others, humor that hurts other people. So Paul says all six of these are inappropriate. And yet, as you look at that list, you probably realize, wow, that is Western society right there. All six of those sins are so incredibly common. 
in the culture we live in. I mean, think about 21st century America. We live this stuff. We eat and breathe it. You turn on the TV, you look on the internet, you turn on the radio, and it's all there all the time. And so we begin to look at these sins and we realize, wow, we live in a society that, that acknowledges and approves of these things. And yet Paul tells us, don't even name them. Now, what does he mean when he says, don't even name these things? Obviously, it doesn't mean don't talk about them because we're talking about them right now. When he says, don't even name them, he says, don't talk about these six things as if they're acceptable. Don't talk about these six things as if they're okay and normal for all of us to do. What Paul is trying to to tell us, what he wants us to do, is he wants us to run from all of these things. Okay, don't just avoid the worst of them, but run completely from any of them. And and that's when our warning needs to get a little uncomfortable for a little bit. We need to talk about what it means to run away from these sins, to, to not compromise with them, to not even give them an inch. When you see this list, when you hear this passage, often one of the first things that comes to our mind is pornography. We know, most of us, I think, that pornography is not honoring to God. It's something that's not okay. It's something that's bad for us. I do find it really good and refreshing to see that even publications like the New York Times, which is not exactly a religious newspaper, are publishing articles recently about the damaging effects of pornography on our society. Even non-believers are realizing this is killing marriages. This is killing our kids. This is destroying everything we care about. It's actually non-Christian scientists realizing that pornography destroys sex lives. You, you can't even have satisfying sex anymore because of this. But I think most of us in this room already know pornography is bad. So I want to take us a little further. I want to think about what I, I want to focus on what I think is actually a, a bigger problem, especially for us in the church. And that bigger problem is the narrowing gap between pornography and regular television. For those of you who've been alive for a while, you have seen over the last couple decades how radically television has slid closer and closer to what we would call pornography. The most popular show on television right now is Game of Thrones. And if you know anything about Game of Thrones, you know that it is a show that is absolutely full of graphic sex, violence, and profanity. It is a show that that I think runs afoul of what Paul is talking about in this passage, and yet tens of millions of people watch it, including many Christians, filling their minds with with the kinds of things on Game of Thrones, and that show is not at all alone. I looked at a list this week of the top ten most popular shows in America right now, and the majority of them are TVMA. They are full of graphic sex and violence, and everybody is watching them. And I don't think it's okay with God when his kids watch that kind of stuff. Now, I'm not here to judge you. I don't have any verse in the Bible that I can point to and show you watching Game of Thrones is a sin. Ultimately, this is between you and God. But what I am telling you is that shows like Game of Thrones are full of darkness. And so when you watch them, you are filling your mind and heart with darkness. And that's going to hurt you. There is no way to escape that reality. It's going to hurt you. And and just so we're clear, we need to be careful about shows that aren't that bad, but that do promote and celebrate things like, like sexuality and violence. 
And we, we need to be careful of any show out there that celebrates or makes fun of sin. A friend of mine, when he was young, he and his brothers were watching a TV show that joked about some pretty heinous sexual sin. And his dad walked in and caught him and said, boys, that's how they change your mind and heart on this stuff. First, they make you think it's funny. Then they make you think it's acceptable. That's exactly what's happened in our society over the last 20 or 30 years. One of the easiest examples to, to share with you, my wife Julie and I were talking about this this week. I want you to think, if, you were, if, you've, or if you're alive long enough, many of you weren't, but if you're alive like me long enough that you saw this happen, I want you to think about the show Friends. When it first came out in the early 90s, that show was edgy. I wasn't allowed to watch it. It didn't show nudity, but it portrayed life as an unending string of sexual encounters with various partners and no negative consequences. And, and lots of people began to watch this show to the point that now it's not edgy. It's quaint. It's nothing compared to what's on TV today. And yet shows like that reset the bar, didn't they? They showed that it was okay to live in a hookup culture, that there would be no negative consequences for you in that. What we need to understand is whatever entertainment we are allowing into our minds, it affects us. And if it's entertainment that's full of sin, it affects us for the worse. I was reading a really great book that's recently out by Ben Stewart. Single, dating, engaged, and married. And in this book, he, he talks about a conversation that went on between a sociology professor and a convicted child rapist. And this rapist told this professor about how predators like him groomed young girls by telling them that what mattered about themselves is how hot they were. Because if these predators could get these women to believe that their worth was found in their overt sexuality, then the predator could exploit that. And then he said this. This is a bombshell line. He said, now the culture does a lot of that grooming for me. Read that and thought, wow, that that is, first of all, the most sickening thing I've ever heard. And second of all, it is the most condemning thing of modern American culture. The things we put on TV and celebrate are grooming our children for sexual predators. We have to realize that the things we allow into our minds affect us. That's why I am not at all surprised by this whole Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey thing going on in the news. These are the leading men of an industry that has been producing and promoting graphic sexual sin for decades. And you're surprised that some of these men have committed sexual crimes? Of course they have. You cannot consume and produce things like that and it not affect you for the worse. We have to realize we've got to be willing to run from the darkness, not compromise with it, not live close to it. We've got to run from it because it will destroy us. It's bad for us. And if it's bad for us as adults in this room, let's recognize how incredibly bad it would be for our kids to watch this kind of stuff. I mean, can you imagine letting that kind of of sexual sin and violence into a child's mind as that child is going through adolescence? As that child is learning what it means to be a sexual human being and they're being fed things like Game of Thrones? It's going to tear our children apart. So I'm not trying to condemn you this morning if you've watched these shows. That is not at all my goal. 
My goal is to call you into the light. My goal is is to call you to something better. God wants something better for you because these, these things, these shows, they will hurt you. Look at verse 5. Paul says in verse 5, for, for this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now, Paul's point here is not to say any person who has done any of these sins is going to hell. That's not the meaning. What he means is these sins in verses 5 and 6 is why God's wrath is poured out upon unbelievers. You have been saved from that wrath through faith in Jesus. So why would you ever go back into this darkness? If this darkness is what brings God's displeasure, his wrath, his punishment, if you've been rescued out of it, why would you ever go back? Do you think Lucas Caver is looking forward to going caving again? Dude is never going to step foot in the darkness ever again. Why would we? God has saved you out of all of the, the destruction and pain of sexual sin and violence and all of this awful stuff. So why would you ever go back to it? Don't even get close to it. Be like Joseph. When Potiphar's wife came calling, you may remember the story. Potiphar's wife, Potiphar is one of those powerful men in Egypt, so I'm... I'm sure his wife was pretty. It was a very sexualized culture. I'm sure he chose a pretty wife, and she comes and propositions Joseph. And what does Joseph do? Well, he doesn't debate with her. He doesn't chat with her. He doesn't, like, go to the other side of the room. You know, as long as we're not any closer than this, it's okay. The dude runs. Run. Flee from the darkness. Don't give it an inch. Don't compromise with it at all. So Paul challenges us to walk in the light of purity. Verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Paul's point here is that we're called to live in the light and we help each other do that by exposing sin. What he's talking about is confronting believers when you see them sinning. Confronting one another when you see any of us choosing a dark path. Now let's be really clear. When Paul talks about exposing sin or rebuking sin, he is not talking about unbelievers. He's not talking about going out there and judging people who are not in the church. 1 Corinthians 5.12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Answer, none. So we as Christians, we are not called to go out and judge unbelievers. We're not called to confront them about their sin. What do we share with unbelievers? Not confrontation, but good news. The gospel. We're to share the love of Christ with them. So this is not about Christians getting up on their high horses and judging the world. No, we have no business doing that. This is about Christians judging one another, challenging one another, rebuking one another, calling one another into the light. God wants us to confront one another when we see sin in another believer's life. Now, the way you do it matters greatly. We talked about that last week with grace and truth. Grace. That means that when you are confronting another believer, first you pray a ton about it. 
And then when you confront them, you surround it in encouragement, lots of encouraging words before and after, and you speak humbly and kindly, and you do it one-on-one with the person, and you do it face-to-face in private. So you do it in a loving and a gracious way. And you do it after having analyzed your own life first, right? Because Jesus says... Take the log out of your own eye before you reach over there to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So you look humbly at your own life first. But once you've looked at your own life and you've prayed and you sit down with a person graciously and you confront their sins, it is important to recognize when you're doing that for another believer, you are not being judgmental. I think there's so many Christians who are so quick to say, well, if you call out sin in another person's life, you're being judgmental. You're not being loving. No, No, Jesus didn't say, take the log out of your own eye and then go mind your own business. He didn't say that. He said, take the log out of your own eye so you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. Why? Because it's not a loving thing to leave a splinter in your brother's eye. That's not good. No, it's loving to say, let me help you with this. Let let me save you from this. So in love, we confront one another when we see sin. We challenge and call one another to a better way of living. We continually call each other into the light. So that's ultimately why I mentioned a particular TV show by name. I prayed about that all week long, whether I should do it. Do it out of love, because I want something better for you. So, step number two of living in the light, it is fleeing from the darkness. But here's the interesting thing. So many Christians make the mistake of staying in number two. They fixate on cutting all the bad stuff out of their lives. Well, if all you ever focus on is cutting out the bad stuff, you're guaranteed to fail in life. It's like if you tell an alcoholic, hey, I want you to repeat to yourself all day, every day, all day long, don't drink a beer, don't drink a beer, don't drink a beer, don't drink a beer, don't drink a beer. What's the only thing he's thinking about? Beer. He's guaranteed to fail. No, what do you do? Good advice to an alcoholic is challenge him to focus on a good thing. Okay, focus on something that's positive. That's exactly what Paul wants for us. The third quality of living in the light is to practice the good discipline of gratitude. Look with me at verse 15. He says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So pause here for a second. Paul is saying that the the wise person who makes the most of his time on earth is the person who is, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, what will his life look like? Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Paul's point is to live in the light, is to practice gratitude. It's to practice Praise And praise is a really churchy word. All praise means is that you say good things about God. God, you are awesome. God, thank you for doing these wonderful things in my life. Praise is specific. It's saying specifically good things about who God is and what he has done. And, and the reason that Paul follows all of the sins to avoid at the beginning of the chapter with this call to gratitude is because of this rule. Gratitude is the antidote to temptation. Okay, let me say that again. Gratitude is the antidote to temptation. 
If you want to say no to sin, you cannot just keep looking at the sin. You have to instead turn and focus on the good things in your life. You got to give thanks for the good things in your life, and that will lead you away from sin. Our proof of that principle is to look at the nation of Israel. If you read the Old Testament, how did Israel do for most of the Old Testament? Like bad, really, really bad. They were knee-deep in immorality and idolatry and social injustice for most of the Old Testament. Why? Why did they do so bad? Well, it tells us this in Psalm 106. They, the Israelites, soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. In the desert, they gave in to their craving. In the wasteland, they put God to the test. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God. Their savior who had done great things in Egypt. Says it twice. Forgot. What does it mean to forget? Well, in the Bible, it's not, again, like this this collapse of your neural network and you can no longer remember. No. Forgetting means you're choosing not to remember, not to give thanks, not to rehearse all the good things God has done. So why is the Old Testament so bleak? Well, the ultimate reason, because Israel chose not to practice gratitude. They didn't practice that discipline of saying thanks for all the good, all the wonder in their lives. And when you don't practice gratitude, then all the bad things this world offers you look so much better. And so they were always led into the sin. That is always true for us. I love what one of my friends, Jimmy Needham, was a Grace alum. He's now a great songwriter, pastor up in the Dallas area. He, he talks about this, and he does it really profoundly. He's, he's reading 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Where Paul says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And then Jimmy says, many Christians, myself included, keep the first part of the verse, flee youthful passions. But forget that Paul never had in mind for us merely to flee from sin. Real freedom came for me when I began, by God's grace, to see that my cravings were for more than just food or sex. All my appetites were at root for an all-satisfying God. God will always be the better treasure, the more pleasing song. Jimmy came to recognize that, that gratitude is the antidote for temptation. If I will focus on the greatness and the glory and the wonder of God and remember all the time how good God has been to me, then sin and temptation will no longer hold me in its grasp. I like to think of it this way. Okay, so you're in your house in the middle of the afternoon and you're on your phone and your screen looks great, doesn't it? Like you're, let's say you're watching a little YouTube video on your phone in your living room and it looks awesome and then someone rings the doorbell and you walk outside into the sunlight and how does your screen look? You can't even see that video anymore. It's washed out by the greater light of the sun. Well, that's how gratitude works. If you're focusing on the sin, goodness gracious, that sin looks amazing. But then you take your eyes off the sin to the greater glory of God, to the wonder of all he's done for you. The fact that he created the world as a gift for you and he sent his son to die for you and he's given you eternal life as a free gift. And you remember those things and then all of a sudden you look down and realize, wow, that sin's not so tempting anymore. The the temptation is washed out by the greater glory of God. Well, that's what you're doing for yourself when you practice gratitude. You're taking your eyes off of the pathetic light of the screen and seeing the greater light of the sun. And the result is no longer does that temptation have such a hold on your heart. 
So if you want to run from the darkness, you practice gratitude. And so Paul challenges us specifically. If we want to practice gratitude, let's, let's practice it in our prayer lives. It's real practical. If you want to practice gratitude, here's what it looks like in your prayer life. Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think a lot of people know that, hey, when I feel anxious, I should pray. That's great, but don't miss the underlined two words. When you feel anxious, if you want that anxiety to go away, what should you do? Pray with thanksgiving. Your prayers to God should begin with thanksgiving, with giving thanks for what God has done for you. That's what unleashes the power of God in your life. So thanksgiving, gratitude should permeate our prayer life. It should permeate our thought life. Paul tells us in the next verse, 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, right, pure, whatever is lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about all the good things God has done in your life, all the good things you know about God. Now, I think Paul's talking about what you might call our free mental time. A lot of the day, like you have to think about like the problems you have to solve and a meeting you're attending or a conversation that you're having. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the time in between, like when you're walking from class to class, when you're driving your car, when you're waiting for a meeting to begin. You have the choice of what you're going to think about during those mental downtimes. And Paul's encouragement to you, if you want to run from the darkness, think about all the things you had to be grateful for. When you get in your car before just turning on the radio, spend a couple minutes giving thanks. When you're walking to your next class, don't just pop in the earbuds. Spend a couple minutes giving thanks. When you're waiting for a meeting to start, spend a couple minutes giving thanks. That's what gratitude looks like. Whenever you have downtime, you're choosing to think about how good God has been to you. Third, and as the men go back to prepare communion, let me give you the third thing on this list. So you practice gratitude. Let gratitude permeate your family life. This may actually be the most important thing I say to you who are here who are parents. As parents, one of our greatest responsibilities in life is to teach our children how to be grateful. It tells us in the book of Psalm, chapter 78, tell to the generation to come, that's our kids, the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. As parents, it is our primary responsibility to teach our children that God is worthy of praise. So that means teaching our children about the goodness and greatness and power and majesty of God. Teaching our kids what God has done in our lives and in the history of the human race. We're, we're teaching our kids about the praiseworthiness of God and then we're modeling to them what it looks like to give thanks. And, and what I mean by that, parents, I would encourage you. Look for opportunities throughout the day to say thank you to God in the hearing of your kids. Okay, so obviously before you have a meal, that's an obvious time. But when you're in the car and there's a beautiful sunset, when, when something good happens in your family, or when something bad happens in your family, find some way to give thanks to God and do it out loud so that your kids can hear that. Because if your kids hear you giving thanks to God every day for the 18 years they are in your home, it will shape them into grateful people, and grateful people follow Jesus for life. Okay, so model that to, the, to your kids, one of our greatest responsibilities in life. If we want to live in the light, 
We have to practice gratitude. It needs to be the normal practice of our lives every day, a habit always on our lips. All right, fourth step for living in the life is to serve one another, and that's next week's whole sermon. Because when Paul talks about serving one another, he uses that other S word, submit. And so we have next week the passage about husbands and wives and submission and marriage. And that's not something I can do in one minute. And so we'll spend the whole Sunday on it next week. For now, what I want us to do is focus on number three by taking communion together. Communion might seem like a kind of funny, weird thing that the church does, but it is actually the primary way we as a family say thank you to God. That's what communion is, the the juice you're drinking and the bread you're eating. They don't like do anything for you. What it's about is saying thank you to God. And so, men, you can come on forward. As the elements pass, what I want you to do is I want you to take some time saying thank you to God, particularly thank you to Jesus For rescuing you from the darkness. And so I want you to think some about what Jesus did for you. That he took your sin. That he died in your place. That he rose from the dead. And offered forgiveness and eternal life to you as a free gift. So man you can begin passing the elements. I want you to take this time to give thanks to Jesus. For all he's done for you. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, right now we want to remember. We, we don't want to be like Israel who forgot. Over and over who chose to forget your goodness and grace. Instead, we want to remember that you, you are so good that we can't even understand your goodness. We don't even have words that can adequately describe how good you are. You, Lord Jesus, are so good that you chose out of love To die for each of us, knowing how sinful we would be, how selfish we would be, how prideful we would be, and yet you died for each of us and then rose from the dead so that each of us could have forgiveness and eternal life. Lord God, we're so grateful that you are light and that you have called us out of the darkness into the light. You have shown us the better way. You and your grace want to deliver us from the pain and emptiness of sin. It's not that you, you don't love fun or that you want to keep us from enjoying life. It's not that at all you live in the light and you know how much better it is to live in light than to live in darkness. And so we praise you and thank you for revealing light to us and calling us into the light and saving us from the darkness. And we pray, Heavenly Father, help us this week to live as light. Help us to run from the darkness by practicing gratitude, by giving thanks. And we pray that when people at A&M, people at our workplaces, people in this community see us, that they would see your light reflecting off of us and be drawn to you. That they would be drawn out of the darkness into the light of your love. Help us, Lord. Challenge us, rebuke us, convict us. 
cut out any of the darkness still in us. Help us to run to you in gratitude and praise every day for the rest of our lives. We thank you so much, Father, in the name of your Son. Now if you'll stand, we're going to continue by giving thanks in worship.